Hear me now? Maybe? Yes? Sorry. It's so unprofessional. I feel very unprofessional. When you fill out your reviews at the end of the week, it can be like, this dude, unprofessional. Didn't turn his mic on. My bad. Hi. How are you? How was your day? Nice. Good. All right. Good, good, good. Well, I want to say thanks for those of you who welcomed me to your tables or said hello. I learned how to put uh, tinsel in hair today. That was nice. Learned how to make some friendship bracelets. Learned how to play bananagrams. Also had some uh, good conversations with many of you, so thanks for that. We talked a little bit about indie rock today. We talked a little bit about video games. Talked a little bit about the Bible. Talked, you know, so it was nice. But there are still a lot of you I haven't met, so hopefully tomorrow we'll get a little more time. But make sure you say hey. I hope you're having a good time. As we continue to talk about the truth being told, we've already talked about the truth of God as revealed in Christ. Then this morning we talked about the, the Bible, the truth of the Scriptures, and the fact that the Scriptures exist also to point us to Jesus, right? That they're inerrant and that they're infallible and that they're sufficient, but that the goal of the Bible is to point us to Christ. And so tonight the logical next step is for us to talk about the truth that's revealed in Christ's life. And, and I think the reason why we need to hone in here, and, and Kevin talked about this a little bit in the video we just saw, but for many of us, when you start to think about Jesus, you may have a skewed perspective, and it's not because you've looked at Jesus and misunderstood, but many times when we look at his followers, we get a skewed view of what Jesus is like, right? Maybe by looking at religious people or looking at Christians, either in 2022 or down throughout the ages, there are a lot of things on the record of Christ followers that are less than representative of what Christ's heart is really like. So tonight we're going to be blazing through a, a few sections of the Bible. In fact, you know, we're working through the whole book of John this week. Tonight we're going to cover John chapter 2 through John chapter 6, right? And we're going to be looking at the life of Christ for the sake of understanding what is revealed about who he is, what he reveals about the truth, but also what that reveals about us as we look at Jesus, and we're going to be moving fast, so we're not going to be looking at John 2 through 6 exhaustively, but as we go through it kind of rapidly, I'm going to give you some highlights, some high points, and some things to think about with regard to the life of Christ, so that you can evaluate the truth of who Jesus is, not based on the lives of his followers, but based on what the Bible actually says about him. I, uh, I had the opportunity when I was a senior in high school, my mom signed me up to be part of the Easter play at her church. And uh, she didn't just sign me up to be part of the Easter play, she signed me up to play Jesus, right? So I got signed up to play Jesus, which means I didn't have a beard then, so they had to glue a beard on me. I got to wear the white robe with the blue sash, you know, that whole thing. I had to learn all these lines, and it was like this big musical production. So there's like a choir and an orchestra and all this stuff, all these actors, and I was playing Jesus, so I had to memorize all this stuff. Well, the finale of the Easter play on Sunday morning at my mom's church was that at the very end of the Easter play, they would hook me up. I was wearing a harness, and they would hook me up to a winch, and they were going to winch me up through the ceiling, right, in this big church. So it's like three stories tall, and I'm going to go up through. There's like this little cut in the ceiling, and I'm going to go up into this square opening in the roof, and that's the end of the Easter play, right? So at the very end, you know, the choir singing, it's like, oh, I don't know why it sounds like Little Mermaid to me, but it does a little, oh, I'm going, uh, and they hook me up, and then I start to go up up, up in the sky, right, at the end, and the, you know, the orchestra's playing, and I look out on the, on the crowd, and I can see, like, people are so moved, like, I can see, like, tears in people's eyes are watching me go up, you know, I got my hands up like this, and I'm going up in the, in the sky, well, the thing is, like, I, when I got up into the hole in the roof, um, that's, there's not, like, a room up there, it's just, like, a crawl space, so what I was supposed to do, and what we had practiced was, 
I was supposed to just lock my arms on either side of the hole. When I got like halfway in, I was supposed to lock my arms and then just kind of like pull myself up in. The problem is, and what we hadn't counted on, is that, and you might be able to tell this, but uh, I have no upper body strength. So, uh, so unfortunately, the way it goes, it's like the choir singing, oh, I'm going up, up, up at the end of the Easter thing, and people are watching, they're like, oh, so beautiful. And then I get halfway up into this hatch in the ceiling, and I lock my arms, but I, I can't lift myself in because I'm just not strong enough. So I start to, like, kick my legs, you know? Like, and I'm sure I was grunting, you know, like, oh, oh, yeah, <laughs> get up, trying to get up in the thing. I don't know. Like, I don't know exactly what it looked like from the auditorium, from the floor, but I imagine the people were like, oh, no, you know, chubby Jesus is having a hard time. He desperately wants to ascend to the right hand of the Father, but he simply doesn't have the upper body strength, you know, I don't know. And, and so I'm like, oh, I'm trying to get up in this hole, so my, my legs are kicking out of the hole, and then there's like a... There's like a tech up in the ceiling in the crawl space, and he just wraps me up like this, and he just yanks me in. So at first it's like, oh, you know, I'm struggling, and then it's like, boom, just sucked up in there. And he must have been like, oh, we witnessed a miracle, you know, I don't know, like, how glorious, you know. And I think about that a lot because I feel like I did an okay job in the rest of the Easter play, but the very last thing I was supposed to do was not a decent representation of what Jesus is really like, you know what I'm saying? So for people who came to that church for the first time and saw that performance, they were probably confused about what's going on with Jesus. He seems like he needs to go to the gym or whatever, right? In this life, if we're going to evaluate the truth of who Jesus is, it's important that we look at what the scriptures tell us about Jesus rather than just evaluating the lives of his followers. Because while the lives of his followers are sometimes exemplary pictures of what Jesus is like, we are all broken. We talked about that this morning. We were talking about our interpretations of the Bible. While we believe the Bible is inerrant and infallible and sufficient, we do not affirm the inerrancy of man's interpretation. We are all of us busted, and what that means is that sometimes we're going to reveal Jesus really well, and sometimes we're going to reveal Jesus really crummy, right? Sometimes our revelation of Christ is going to be crummy. So it's important for us to look at what the Bible says about who Jesus is and what that reveals to us about the truth. So I just want to make this rapid movement through John 2 through 6, right? So John 2 is where Jesus begins his life and ministry, right? According to the, the writer here in John, that's where we see his very first miracle at the beginning of John 2. He turns water into wine. I think it's important for you to note that as we're looking at the truth of who Jesus is, that the very first thing he does, he doesn't really give a speech he doesn't say anything real profound. There's nothing real spiritual. He shows up at a wedding, and the wedding party runs out of wine, and his mom's like, hey, can you help him out? And he's like, well, it's not really my time to do that. And she's like, I think you should. And so he does. He obeys his mom, literally, and turns water into wine, not just wine, but the best wine. But essentially, all he's doing in his very first miracle is serving people and sparing them from shame and embarrassment, right? Right? The wedding party that ran out of wine would have been humiliated in that culture. It's, a, it's an honor-shame culture, and to not have had enough wine would have been shaming for them on the wedding day. Jesus shows up, and his very first miracle is just helping people out. I want, you to, I want you to see that. I want you to see that Jesus cares about the little things in our life, that he sees us, and his power is brought to bear in service of others' needs, and sometimes those needs are just little things. It's interesting, also in John chapter 2, we see the, uh, the, the story, let's look at this together. John chapter 2, look at verse 13. 
This is a famous story where Jesus goes into the temple, and if you've ever heard people talk, you know, like sometimes we say, oh, Jesus is like, he's gentle and lowly, he's peaceful and gracious and kind, and there's a certain kind of a Christian that'll be like, yeah, but he's also tough. He turned over the tables, he made a whip, and he chased those guys out, right? Um, That's kind of true, but let's look at the actual story here. John chapter 2, verse 13. It says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So we certainly see Jesus being aggressive in John chapter 2 at the beginning of his ministry, but I want you to note that there's, there's not a profound amount of violence in this. What Jesus essentially does is he comes into the temple, which is meant to be a place of worship, and he sees that there are these people there buying and selling things, that there's this exchange, right, that people can pay to get the pigeons or to get the, the bulls or the goats that they need for their sacrifices, and Jesus comes in and, and he stops all of that. He turns over the tables, he chases the animals out, and what Jesus objects to, and we can hear it in his own voice, is he says, hey, this stuff can't be taking place in here because my father's house is not a house of trade. It's not a place of exchange. Well, it's important for you to understand what Jesus was frustrated about this. Jesus wasn't frustrated that there were animals in the temple, and he wasn't frustrated uh, about the nature of what was happening there because the people needed those animals for the sacrifice. What he was saying is, my father's house is not a place that you come to exchange. You don't give something and get something. My father's house is a place for the receiving of gifts, right? God, what God does for us and what he gives us, he gives us by his grace. It's not a place of trade. It's not a place where you can buy something, right? We don't have a relationship with God because we bought and sold something. There's no exchange happening there. Jesus says, my father's house will not be a house of trade or a house of exchange. And he is frustrated about that. He's vigilant about it, right? That we see in John chapter 2. When we get to John chapter 3, and I know we're moving fast, at the beginning of John chapter 3, there's a religious leader, a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a religious leader. He would have been a very important social figure in this period of time, in this particular place. Nicodemus is a guy who would have gone to school to learn the Old Testament. He's a guy that would have been respected in his community. He's the sort of guy that is so religious and like so holy that like parents would have been naming their children after a guy like Nicodemus. That's how popular he was for his holiness. And he comes to Jesus in John chapter 3, and what Nicodemus essentially tries to do is to, is to demonstrate that he and Jesus are on the same level, that they're peers. This is what Nicodemus says. This is John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi... We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him, right? So Nicodemus shows up, and he says to Jesus, he goes, hey, I got to tell you, me and my pals, we're pretty impressed with what you pulled off there. I mean, we've been watching you, and we're pretty impressed with what you do. We know, because we're men of God too, that what you're doing, you would only be able to do if you were doing it by the power of God, right? What Nicodemus is trying to do is establish his own authority, He's trying to establish his own power by equating it with what he sees in Jesus. And Jesus, rather than leaning into that, rather than taking the bait, 
right? Rather than looking at Nicodemus and saying, yeah, it's true, man. You know, I'm a holy guy and you're a holy guy. Yeah, you love God and I love God. We're both doing great things in the community. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered Nicodemus and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus has just said, hey, we've been watching you and we can tell that you're doing the work of God. And Jesus goes, nope, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you start all over, right? What Jesus is illustrating here is that the kingdom of God is not about modifying your life. It's not about going from good to great, right? What God comes to bring and what he brings into our lives then and what he brings into our lives now is not just improving our life, not just making a little bit better, but what Jesus brings is the ability to be made wholly new, to be completely rebuilt from the ground up, to be born again. Nicodemus doesn't really get it. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is making the case here that all of Nicodemus' work, all of his study, all of his religiosity, all of his good deeds, all of his power in the community, right? All of his reputation, everything he has is worthless in the kingdom of God. What matters in the kingdom of God is being born again by the power of his spirit. Well, that would, have, that would have been fundamentally troubling for a guy like Nicodemus, right? If you've worked your whole life to build a reputation, if you've studied and slaved and worked hard to become a man of authority and power in a community, if you're well-loved and respected and then this Jesus guy looks at you and says, none of that stuff matters, you've got to start completely over, you'd be frustrated. But what are we seeing? Well, we're seeing the truth of the kingdom of God as revealed in the life of Jesus. And what that does for Nicodemus is it forces him to make a decision. The same thing is true for each and every one of us tonight. As we start to look at the truth of who Jesus is, a Jesus that cares about the little things, right? A Jesus that doesn't want people to think that there's an exchange to be made with God, but a Jesus who recognizes that we just need to be in a position of receiving the gifts of God. A Jesus that knows us and a Jesus that would look at a religious person, right, a well-known and respected religious person and say, religion is not what God is after. He's after a whole new heart. That forces Nicodemus to rethink his life. It forces us to rethink our lives. We go on to John chapter 4. And in John chapter 4, uh, Jesus is traveling through a place called Samaria. And I'm not going to water this down for you, right? The Jewish people at this time... We're racists, right? So like there's not really a nice way to say that. But the Jewish people hated the Samaritans because the Samaritans they considered to be half-breeds. And so the Jews didn't have anything to do with the Samaritans. In fact, they would go around the Samaritan towns because they didn't want to have anything to do with them. Jesus goes into this town in Samaria and he sits down on the edge of a well in the heat of the day, which is not the time when people would draw water from the well because in the Middle East it gets very, very hot, Right? You go to draw water in the morning. Jesus is there in the heat of the day, and there's a woman that comes to draw water. The fact that she's coming in the heat of the day and the fact that she's coming by herself tell us something about her social status. This is a woman who's been rejected by her peers. It's a woman who's been rejected by her community. She is not welcome to come and draw water with the other women in her city. She has to come by herself because she's an outcast. When she comes to the well on this particular day, she finds Jesus sitting on the edge of the well, and he looks at her and he says, will you give me a drink? And this would have been mind-blowing to her, right? The truth of who Jesus is would have blown this lady's mind. And in fact, she says to him, 
what are you doing? Because number one, Jews didn't speak to Samaritans. Number two, Jewish men didn't speak to women that weren't their wives. Number three, rabbis definitely didn't speak to Samaritan women, right? So he's violating all kinds of rules just to ask her for a drink. We see this in John chapter 4. Look at verse 7. It says, a woman from Samaria, Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, can ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She looks at him and she's like, dude, I don't know what's wrong with you, but you're a Jewish male rabbi. You're not supposed to speak to a Samaritan non-Jewish woman. Like that doesn't happen. And he was like, well, if you knew who I was, you'd actually be asking me for living water, right? She comes back and says this in verse 11. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. When she asked him if he's greater than their father Jacob, Jacob is one of her famous ancestors, right? He lived hundreds and hundreds of years before this. When she asked Jesus, are you greater than Jacob? She's not really asking whether he's greater than Jacob. She's trying to figure out if he's insane. She's trying to figure out if he has a mental problem. Like this guy in the middle of the heat of the day, a Jewish male rabbi talking to a Samaritan woman, that doesn't happen. So when she says, are you greater than Jacob, what she's trying to assess is, is he bonkers, right? She says, are you greater than Jacob, our father who dug this well? Jesus says this in verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, the truth of Jesus' life as demonstrated in John 4 is that he's talking about spiritual water. He's talking about spiritual refreshment, spiritual life. But this lady who has to come out every day to draw water in the heat of the day by herself, all she can think about is if I get this living water and I'm never thirsty again, I won't have to keep coming out here. So she says to him, give me this living water. I want it. She's thinking very practically, right? In very practical terms, give me the water. Look at what Jesus does next. I want you to look at the truth of who Jesus is here. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. I want you to think about this for a second with me. Think critically with me. Why does Jesus ask her to go and get her husband? Does she need to have her husband present in order to have spiritual life from Jesus? Does she need to have him there? Like, do we become, uh, do we become followers of God in, in pairs or in groups? No. So why does she look at this woman who's clearly interested in living water? Why does God look at her? Why does Jesus look at her and say, go and get your husband? He doesn't ask her to go and get her husband because he needs her husband to be present in order to talk to her about spiritual life. He asks her about her husband because he's inviting her to be honest about her brokenness. He's inviting her to be vulnerable with him about the truth of who she is. She doesn't take the opportunity, by the way. He says, go and get your husband. She says in 17, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus looks at her, and he he had just given her the opportunity to own the fact that the reason she's coming out in the middle of the day is because her, her relationships are broken. And she's coming out in the middle of the day because she's an outcast. The guy she's living with now is not even her husband. Jesus says, go and get your husband, and she had a chance to be vulnerable and honest 
But, but that doesn't come easy for us because we're used to being beaten up for the truth of our brokenness, right? That's not who Jesus is. So she says, I don't have a husband, and he comes right back and he goes, thanks for answering honestly. It's true, you don't currently have a husband, but you have had five, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. Now watch how quickly she changes the subject. She changes the subject because she's uncomfortable, because she's embarrassed, because she's ashamed, because he's just revealed the truth of who she is. And it is our natural tendency, when confronted with the truth, to feel embarrassed, right? Just like I told you when my son Jack called me out for being rude to my wife. That's embarrassing. So she says to him, he says, what you've said is true. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship, right? She does this thing that people do all the time. God is inviting her to be honest and vulnerable about her own brokenness. And rather than get in that conversation with him because of her own embarrassment, what she does is she pivots and she wants to talk about theology. She wants to talk about the nuances of interpretation of the scripture. She goes, hmm, I can tell that you're a prophet. We have this uh, ongoing debate about whether we should worship here in Samaria or should we worship in Jerusalem. What do you think? And Jesus isn't going to get sucked into that, right? He's not going to get sucked into her sidestep. So look at what he says to her in verse 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. She goes, I have a question for you. She doesn't want to talk about her own broken relationship. She goes, I got a question for you. Is it more proper to worship here or in Jerusalem? He goes, eh, it doesn't matter where your feet are planted. You can be in Samaria, you can be in Jerusalem, you can be on the other side of the planet for all I care. What God is looking for is not people whose feet are planted in the right place. He's looking for people whose hearts are planted in the right place. So Jesus sidesteps her question entirely. He doesn't get in the weeds with her about Samaria or Jerusalem. He goes, I'm looking for a heart that's in the right place, right? And she then says this. She tries to sidestep one more time. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. She goes, oh, well, that's an interesting opinion. You know, the bottom line is I'm going to wait until the Messiah comes because when he comes, he'll reveal the truth. And Jesus looks and says to her in verse 26, if you're the kind of person who underlines, you might underline this verse. John 4, verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I want you to see that verse because it is one of the clear places where Jesus says, you're waiting for the Messiah and he's here, right? You're looking for your Savior, and I have arrived. She says, well, I'm going to wait until the Messiah comes because he'll tell us what's actually going on. And Jesus says, your wait is over. I'm right here. I'm offering you living water. The woman's life is transformed, by the way. And she goes into town and tells the other townspeople, you've got to come and see a man who told me everything I ever did, right? Her confession of who Jesus is is that he's a guy who knows the truth about who she is, and cares about her still. If you and I are talking about the truth of who Jesus is, that we're looking at the truth of how Jesus is revealed in the scripture, I want each and every one of you to hear me closely. Jesus is someone who knows everything about you. John 2.25 says he didn't need man's testimony about himself because he knew what was in a man's heart. Whatever your secrets are, whatever you're embarrassed about, whatever you're ashamed of, everything you hope that other people don't know about you, check this, God knows it already, and he loves you. He loves you. He gives you the opportunity to be honest and open about your brokenness and your vulnerability and everything you could possibly share about your own brokenness, he already knew before he loved you, right? He loves you. 
no matter what. That's who the Jesus is revealed is here. We, we, we have a hard time with our own shame, don't we? I remember one time my son Will uh, was getting ready for school, and he was taking a long time. The rest of the family, we were all in our car. We're waiting in the driveway, and I'm like, Will, let's go. I'm kind of hollering in the house, Will, let's go. And he was just little. He was like, I think he was probably like in kindergarten or first grade, so he's like five or six years old, and he's running late, whatever. We're like, Will, let's go. We're going to be late, whatever. And so he comes running out of the house, and Will, as he's coming out of the house, he's got this, um, this folder, like, the black, like a black binder I'd never seen before. And as he's coming out to the car, he trips on the steps of our house. And the binder flies out of his hands, and it falls out onto the ground in front of me and his mom and his two brothers and his sister. And what falls out of the black binder uh, is, is a catalog. And he goes, my secret, right? And we all kind of look at him, and we're like, what's he talking about? And we look down. And it's the American Girl doll catalog, right, that he was sneaking in a black binder to school with him, uh, supposedly look at. Now, here's the thing. I don't care if my son looks at American Girl doll catalog, right? I've looked at those, too. They're kind of cool, right? But he was carrying himself. He was carrying himself with a mindset that said, if my family knew that I liked this, they would judge me. You know that you and I walk through our lives like that all the time, and the reason we walk through our lives like that is because the culture has taught us that we will be judged for our brokenness. I want you to look with me tonight at what Jesus does with the woman at the well, and I want you to see that he invites you just to be honest about who you are, the good and the bad, the victories and the losses. Just own it, because he loves you. That's who Jesus is. We move on to John chapter 5, and I know we're moving quick, but in John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man who, who has, um, Jesus heals a man in, in John chapter 5 who was at the pool of Bethesda, and, and this is a guy, let's look at John 5 together. In John chapter 5, there is this man uh, that has been an invalid. He hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. And Jesus looks at him in verse 6 and says, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going down, another steps before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk, and at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now you would think that if there's a guy who hasn't been able to walk for 38 years, and Jesus looks at him and says, hey, would you like to be made whole? And he's like, that'd be awesome. Jesus heals him. You would think that all the people around would be like high-fiving and throwing a party. They'd be popping bottles of champagne like, yeah, this dude can walk now, right? That isn't the response of the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders, look at this with me, if you will. It says in John chapter 5, look at, verse, uh, look at verse 10. John chapter 5, verse 10, the Jews who were there said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed, right? They look at him and they go, wait, you can't carry your mattress on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. These Jewish people are more concerned about their own religious laws. They're more concerned about their rules than they are about the fact that a guy who hasn't been able to walk for 38 years all of a sudden can by the power of God. They should be celebrating, and instead they're frustrated that Jesus broke their rules. And so they start to plot his death, not just because he violated the Sabbath, but also in John chapter 5, there are some, it says in verse 18, who want to kill him because he's openly claiming to be God. John chapter 5 verse 18 says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So let me just tell you what this means first in John 5. As we look at the truth of who Jesus is, we see a guy who cares more about people and healing them and setting them free and loving them than he does about religious rules, right? 
Don't misunderstand that because that's the thing that Christians have gotten wrong over the last 2,000 years. There are many, many times where we get more concerned about our religious rules than we do about the people around us, right? Jesus cares about the people. Now, the Jewish leaders get so frustrated that they want to kill him, but don't miss the reason they want to kill him. They don't just want to kill him because he did this thing on the Sabbath day. They want to kill him because he's claiming to be God. There are people in our world today who will try to tell you that Jesus never claimed that, that Jesus didn't say he was God, he didn't claim it. But what the Bible tells us clearly is that there were those who were out to get him, that they wanted to kill him because they understood what he was claiming. The people that were Jesus' peers in that, in that era understood what he was saying about himself. He was equating himself with God. So not only does he claim to be the Messiah, he's also claiming to be God, which is why they want to kill him. We come to John chapter 6, and John chapter 6 is a famous chapter. There's a couple of really cool things that happen in John 6. In John 6, we see the feeding of the 5,000. Some of you maybe heard that story before. There's all these people sitting on a hillside, and Jesus is like, we should feed them. And the disciples are like, we don't have any money, and we definitely don't have enough food for 5,000 men and all their wives and kids. It's never going to happen. And there's a kid who's got a basket of food, and Jesus prays over it, and he divides it, and he feeds all those people, right? He feeds them all. Not only does that happen in John chapter 6, but in John chapter 6 is where we see Jesus walk on the water. Kind of a famous story there. We're not going to spend a lot of time in it. But Jesus is walking on the water so that his disciples can see that even the wind and the waves can't stop him from drawing near to them, right? But what's really crazy is at the end of John 6, and this is sort of where we'll, we'll sort of finish up tonight. At the end of John 6, there's a bunch of people that are following Jesus, right? Big crowd. And you might look at that and you may be like, that's great. Bunch of people following Jesus, right? He's, he's the Messiah. He is God in a body. He came to the earth to bring living water and healing and life. How cool that they're following him, right? The problem is that the people at the end of John 6 are following him because he fed them, right? They got loaves and fishes, and now they're following Jesus because they just want more food. I will tell you that in today's day and age, there are still people who are coming to church because they want to get something, right? Because they want to have their bellies filled, because they want... They want to find a boyfriend, or they want to find a girlfriend, or they want, whatever. They've, they've got all kinds of things they want. And Jesus looks at this big crowd that's only there because they want food, and they keep saying to him, hey, are you going to make more bread? Are you going to make more fish? We'd like to have another sandwich. And Jesus does something kind of radical. He looks at the crowd in John chapter 6, and he says, you think you need bread and fish from me, but that isn't really what you need. What you need is not what I give you. What you need is me myself. And the way in which he phrases that is by telling them that they actually need to be hungry for his flesh and they need to be thirsty for his blood, which if that sounds disturbing to you, it's a little disturbing. It was disturbing in the time in which he said it. But what Jesus is saying is, don't come to me for the things you can get from me. Come to me because you're hungry to have a relationship with me, because you want me. Be hungry for me. We've talked again and again in these first three sessions about the fact that, that God is revealing himself to us through Christ. Not just so we can get something from him, but so that we can be hungry for him. For that relationship we had with God in the beginning. And it tells us in John chapter 6 that there are hundreds of people who abandoned Jesus on that day, including some of his disciples. In John chapter 6, verse 66, for instance, it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away too? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon, or the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve and was going to betray him. Jesus has a bunch of people abandon him because they don't want to put up with his teaching. L- listen, this is where we're headed tonight. What we've seen it rapidly in John 2 through 6 tonight is that Jesus is powerful, that he knows us, he's just, he's honest and direct, he's loving, he's engaged, he's aware, he's gracious, he's the Messiah, he's God himself, he's compassionate, right? He is what we need, not just what he gives us. But the reality is that when we look at the truth of the life of Christ revealed, not just in these chapters, but in all the chapters that that talk about Christ, when we look at his life, it puts us in an interesting position. Because you can't look at Jesus without then being forced to make a decision about what you're going to do with that information. When you realize that Jesus is the Messiah, when you realize that he's God, when you realize that he knows you and he loves you, when you realize that he's bringing his power to bear on your behalf, when you realize that he invites you to be honest about who you are and his love for you doesn't change, it requires you to respond. For some of the people in the New Testament, when they looked at who Jesus was, they believed in him and they followed him. But for others, when they listened and they looked at who Jesus was, they had to go their own way because they didn't want to follow Jesus. I'll give you a quick illustration just to sort of summarize this. But when my wife and I first got married, um, I remember we were sitting in our little apartment. We'd only been married for two or three months. And we're sitting in our little apartment in Arizona and we're watching TV or something. And all of a sudden my wife looks over at me and she goes, uh, she goes, hey, do you want some ice cream? And I was like, uh, look at me. I always want ice cream, right? Of course. So she goes, okay, hold on. I'm going to go into the other room and I'll get us some ice cream. And I'm like, that's awesome. So she goes into our little kitchen in our little apartment and she's in there like getting ice cream. And I'm sitting on the couch thinking like, this is the best thing ever. I married the girl of my dreams. I love this girl. We're watching TV in our own apartment. Like we've been married for a couple months. And now she's just like going into the other room and she's going to bring us ice cream. Like I am living my best life. You know, like so great. And so I'm feeling really happy and just kind of like euphoric, whatever. And then my wife comes back and she's got two bowls and two spoons. And she hands me my bowl of ice cream. And when I look into the bowl, uh, there is like the tiniest little scoop of ice cream in the bottom, right? I don't even know how she made that tiny scoop, maybe like with a melon baller or something. I'm not sure how she did it, but this tiny little scoop. And I, I just thought she was like playing a trick on me, right? So I was like, this, this is funny. Like that's a that's the cutest little scoop of ice cream, you know? Like, thank you, but can I get the rest, you know? And she's like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, you give me this tiny little scoop of ice cream. Like, I, I would like to have more. And she goes, uh, that is the recommended serving of ice cream. And I was like, well, who cares about the recommended serving of ice cream? And she goes, well, when you read the package, it says that this is how much you're supposed to have. She goes, this is, this is the recommended serving. She goes, Darren... I love you. We're just beginning our life together. She's like, as long as we're married, I'm never going to give you something that's bad for you. And so I was like, well, then from now on, I'll serve myself ice cream, right? (laughs) Now, let me tell you what happened there, right? Let me tell you what happened. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's applause worthy, but let me just tell you what happened. I I want you to get what I'm telling you here. What I chose in that moment was to do my own thing because I didn't want what was good for me. What I chose in that moment was to reject the love and the service of my wife because what she wanted for me was better than what I wanted for myself. Does that make sense? 
I will tell you, and I want you to think about this, both right now and over the course of the next couple of hours, there are many of us in the room who are holding Jesus at arm's length. We don't want to follow him. We don't want to believe in him. We don't want to surrender our lives to him because we don't want what's best for us. Because we want to eat whatever amount of ice cream we want. Because we want to live the life we want to live. Because we want to go where we want to go and do what we want to do. We want to make the money. We want to get the followers. We want to get the fame. We want to get the power. We want to feel the pleasure. We want to do all our things. And we don't want what's best for us. And so in, this, in essence, what we're doing is we're looking at the truth of who Christ is. And we're saying, yeah, he is gracious and kind and loving. He brings healing and restoration and reconciliation. He invites me to be his daughter and his son. He gives living water. But no thanks, because I don't want the recommended serving. I want to do my thing. I just want you to understand that that is a choice that each of us who look at the truth of who Christ is have to make. We have to make a decision about whether or not we're going to embrace God in a body who came to restore us and to love us, to heal us and to free us. Or are we going to hold him at arm's length and say, I see who you are, but I'm going to do my own thing. Because I don't want what's best for me. I want what I want. As we process the truth of who Jesus is, and then tomorrow we'll be processing the truth of what his life says about our life, I invite you to think about whether or not you scooping your own ice cream is actually the path you want to take. Or if it might be better to say, you know what? The one who created me knows what's best for me. Would you pray with me? The band's going to come back up. We're going to worship some more, but let's pray together. God, God, I pray that you would help us to look seriously at our own lives. That you would give us the ability to honestly evaluate ourselves in the same way that the woman at the well had to do or in the same way that Nicodemus had to do. That you would give us the opportunity to evaluate our lives and our priorities in the same way that the money changers in the temple had to do. That you'll help us to think fresh about our lives in the same way that the Jews who were mad about the healing of a man who'd been, who'd been lame for 38 years, they were mad about it. I pray that you would cause us to think about our lives in light of who you are. And that rather than holding you at arm's length and insisting we're going to do it our own way because we don't want what's best for us, that instead we would let down our guard that we would trust the one who made us to know what's best for us. That we would look at the truth revealed in Christ's life and allow our lives to be transformed by that understanding. We pray it in Jesus' name.